You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. And hello, listeners. Surprise! Welcome to the Common Descent Podcast, a very special in-between bonus extra episode content that we are calling episode 37 and a half. Yeah. You know, sometimes we get requests, we get a lot of requests, and sometimes we get requests that we're not quite sure when we're going to be able to get to them, and we're not quite sure how to form an episode or if we want to fit them into another episode or something like that. The last episode, episode 37, was about the evolution of birds. And we've actually gotten a bunch of bird-related requests for very specific bird topics. Mm -hmm. And at first I was trying to think of a way to, maybe I could fit those in at the end of that episode. But there were a bunch and that didn't really seem to fit. And then that episode was filling up. So I thought, you know what? Let's do a bonus smorgasbord episode. Yeah, just just a a mix-matched bird episode. Yes, so on this special bonus episode, we are going to work our way through three specific bird-related requests that have come from our listeners, basically mini-discussions. So in this short episode, we are going to discuss the three subjects of flamingos, which was suggested by Nick, one of our patrons, the terror birds, which was suggested by two other patrons, Lydia and Cheryl, both suggested this, and... The Largest Flying Birds in History, which was suggested by Jason on Twitter. This will be a great opportunity for us to knock these out, satisfy some extra requests, and just have some fun talking about some really cool Cenozoic birds. Yeah, since we, more recent. Yes, indeed. And as an added bonus, since this is a bonus addendum to episode 37... We will also throw up a bunch of bonus links and pictures to the episode 37 blog post. We'll update that blog post when this episode comes out. So head on back over to the blog post to see more pictures and links about the stuff we were just talking about. So without any more ado, let's jump right into it and start talking about birds. Starting with our first category, flamingos. Listeners, you probably know what flamingos are. They're pretty charismatic and iconic as birds go. Very common among front yards. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Flamingos are wading birds. They stand on long, stilt-like legs and walk through shallow water. Salt water, specifically. Flamingos are very specially adapted for that. They tend to be pink or orange or red in color. Mm -hmm. They also have a habit of standing on one leg for reasons that remain mysterious to this day, believe it or not. <laughs> flamingos today, in fact all flamingos, belong to a group of birds called the Phenocopteriforms. There are six living species, the greater flamingo, the lesser flamingo, the Chilean flamingo, James's flamingo, and the Andean and American flamingos. They are found in the Americas, as well as Europe, Asia, and Africa. Six species in three genera. There have been many attempts to figure out where flamingos fit on the bird family tree. There have been a handful of different suggestions as to exactly where they go. Most recently, the most recent studies 
have concluded that they are the sister group, that is, they are the most closely related to the grebes. Oh, okay. Yeah, grebes are freshwater divers, uh, very much like a duck. Yeah. Uh, though they're not actually all that closely related to ducks. So, flamingos, right, have, they're very unique birds. Flamingos are not very much like other birds. No, they, they like, they have similar body design in certain ways, like long legs, kind of like a stork, but then that's a about where it ends their body shape is weird and they got that ridiculously long neck they do and they have a weird face really weird face yeah so some of the you know the unique features of flamingos once again that sort of stilt-legged stance Mm -hmm. that long curved neck that they have they are highly social Uh, you'll see a lot of nature documentaries love to show video clips of just colonies of flamingos which can get up into the tens of thousands yeah of birds in a colony uh and they'll, they'll you know I, I like to see those those i'm thinking of the the, the stock footage where fl- they all just take off at the same time yeah yeah that that nice nice time to bring the orchestra in moment yes exactly <laughs> uh, they can fly even though they spend most of their time wading through the water they are flight capable that classic pink or red color actually, famously, comes from pigments in the food they eat. Yes, it does. In the algae and crustaceans and things that they eat. A flamingo that's not being fed those kinds of things will not have that familiar pink to red hue. They aren't the only bird that has that happen. Uh, spoonbills, the roseate spoonbills that are famous down here in Florida, and we have them at the aquarium, they also get their food, their color from the food they eat. And we actually have to feed them flamingo food to give them their color at the aquarium. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So same same exact mechanic. Very neat. One of the most unique things about flamingos, I think, is that they are filter feeders. Yeah, and really, really unique way of doing it. Yes. Yeah, so they're not, you know, a lot of wading birds are stalkers. They're predators, right? Mm-hmm. A stork or a heron is is jabbing to catch fish and things like that flamingos filter feed like whales do yeah they have those really odd beaks that that sort of curved that l shape beak that they have yep and their beak has these rows of plates in it that are not all that dissimilar from baleen if you mm-hmm. think about you know humpback whale has those that that sort of sieve like structure and flamingos suck in water and mud and pump it back out and they catch their food uh, along those bristles, along those plates. Mm-hmm. The food they're eating are things like shrimp and other small creatures. Some flamingos, their filters are so finely spaced that they can filter single-celled algae. Wow. Which is pretty crazy. Possibly the most ridiculous thing, though, about the way that flamingos eat is that they eat upside down. Yeah, it's a very unique stance that they take for filter feeding. They've got those long necks, and they dip their heads down into the water upside down. Mm-hmm. That's why the bill is shaped that way. Is they're actually, if their bill was straight like a normal bird's, it would be poking in the mud, so it just curves where it meets the water. It does, and indeed, the flamingo jaw structure is kind of reversed <laughs> in that their lower bill is bigger and stronger, and their upper bill is hinged. Yeah so that the upper bill is the one that moves. So when they are under upside down underwater, their bill can act like a normal right-side-up beak. <laughs> <laughs> Which is super weird. 
Very strange. So bizarre. And some people have actually pointed out that the shape of the jaw, uh, particularly that one of them is sort of large and curved, and the other is trough-shaped mm-hmm. with a big tongue uh, acting as, as part of the pump mechanism, is extremely similar to the skull shape of certain whales. Makes sense. That not only that sort of filter structure, that, 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 that not baleen, but similar to baleen kind of thing they have going on. Yeah, the sieve. Their fa- they're the structure of their beak, which means flamingos are birds that are convergent with whales. Yeah. <laughs> which is... I think the most wonderful statement I could say about flamingos. Which is, and so it's, I love that concept for the main reason that it's cool on its face, but the fact that you can be convergent with an animal in lifestyle and not at all in body shape overall. Yeah. That this is a filter feeder who is, instead of huge and bulky, very thin and frail. Yes. They actually do feed very differently. Like the way that the filter works is different. Uh, but that general shape of their filter-feeding mouth is surprisingly similar, which is pretty crazy. It's very cool. It's also fun to watch them feed because they, they swing their head back and forth in that sweeping motion uh, yes. to, to, like, scan the surface. And it's just constantly, like, when we think of whales feeding, they take big gulps and then sieve the big gulp. They're taking, like, hundreds of little gulps back and forth, sieving every few, you know every second. They're just in and out, in and out, sieving this top layer of the water, and it's very, very fast-paced. Yes, it makes them very strange and unique birds to watch. Like they're sweeping a metal detector. (laughs) A dowsing rod. Yes, yes. Now, of course, as is always the case with our podcast format, let's talk about flamingos of the past. Starting with some historical notes. Actually, the news item that inspired Nick to suggest that we talk about flamingos on the podcast was a bit of news that came out earlier this year about flamingos in Florida and the question of whether or not the flamingos in Florida are invasive or belong there and we've just extirpated them mostly. Mm -hmm. So there was this study that was done to answer that, right? Because if they're invasive, we want to get rid of them. Yes. But if they actually belong there, then it's our fault that they're so rare (laughs) and we should maybe be protecting them. This was a study that looked for historical evidence and found it. Found evidence that in the 19th century, back in the 1800s, there were flocks of flamingos apparently native to Florida, as many as thousands strong in these colonies, similar to what we see today in places like South America. The evidence seems to indicate that they were hunted and eventually rid of the area by 1900, but they may even have nested in Florida. Very interesting. So up until very recently, they may also have been native to the very southernmost United States. Yeah, I mean, and that that's an important question to answer because the idea that they're invasive here in Florida is very prevalent um, it, it's also, there's lots of people who don't question their presence here. They're just so used to them that they consider them a, a normal uh, resident of Florida. But right. I, I've heard many a time people be corrected that they're actually invasive. So that idea is very, very prevalent and strong down here. So it's, that's interesting. Yes. Who, who is truly the invasive <laughs> yes. species it's, in Florida? It, it's usually us. Uh, who is the monster <laughs> and who is the man? 
Going back a little farther, this is a very short note because I couldn't actually find any other details on this other than that it exists. There is at least one example that I read about of a cave in Spain that has flamingo cave art from several thousand years ago. Oh, cool. At least one time in human history, someone painted a flamingo on a cave wall. That's cool. Yeah, that's really, that's neat. I never would have expected, I never would have thought to look on cave walls for flamingo paintings. That, that's very interesting. I know they're charismatic birds. You know, if I, if I was a painter, I'd paint them. I agree. <laughs> Get some neat. nice pink and red pigments. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. <laughs> that's neat. That's just, that's fun. <laughs> but now let's go back even farther. Let's talk about the fossil record. Last episode, the episode 37, we ended by saying that modern bird groups radiated after the Mesozoic ended. So when do flamingos show up? The earliest flamingos in the fossil record, or rather the earliest animal that comes up when you search for flamingos in the fossil record, is a bird named Juncetarsus, which is either a very early flamingo or a close relative of the early flamingos. Yeah. As always, it's very hard to tell. Juncetarsus comes from the Middle Eocene around 45 million years ago, and it looks almost like you'd expect modern-day flamingos to look. Wow. That sort of stilt-legged, long-neck shape was already in place. This bird comes from Wyoming, and there's possible evidence for it in Germany as well. There's evidence of young and old individuals fossilized together, which suggests they may have been colonial like modern flamingos. They are found in saline environments, which suggests that they hung around in saltwater like modern flamingos do. This was a very flamingo-like bird. The major difference between Juncetarsus and modern-day flamingos is the beak. That's what I was guessing. Juncetarsus did not have that iconic flamingo beak like we see in them today. Which, which makes sense. It would have been very surprising if the early, early, early flamingo also had that crazy derived beak. Yes. That would be very surprising. But this does suggest that the ancestral state of this family is very much like modern flamingos all the way back to the eocene which is pretty crazy that's a that's a long lineage for that body shape that's cool yeah as we move on there is another flamingo genus called elornis which comes from the lower oligocene of france so we're looking at 30 million years ago or so and then there are plenty of fossils of the modern genera of flamingos specifically the modern genus phenicopterix Particularly interesting is that there are fossils of modern style flamingos, or at least the modern genera of flamingos, in lots of places that they don't live today. Interesting. There is a fossil record of flamingos as far back as the Miocene in North America, which hmm. is pretty cool. And there is a abundant record. Uh, this blows me away. There is an abundant record of flamingos from the Oligocene to the Pleistocene. So from maybe 30, 30 million years ago all the way to just a few million, maybe tens of thousands of years ago mm -hmm. in Australia. I was wondering if that's what you're going to say. That's very unique. There are six different species of fossil flamingo known from Australia. Huh. And they apparently survived right up until the Ice Age. Interesting. I, it makes me wonder since... Nowadays, flamingos are almost wholly in environments and ecosystems that are, for most other birds, not very 
suitable. You know, there's some flamingos that are in extremely acidic water. Yes. That's almost uninhabitable other than the food they're eating. I wonder if, if these populations that are no longer found where they are, you know, are evidence that these kind of ecosystems come and go and the flamingos follow them at all or anything like that. Interesting. That is a very good point that I didn't mention before that flamingos are hunting, sort of, yeah, in environments that are tip- oftentimes not very hospitable. Yeah, which is also part of their protection is that there's not many yes. animals that can hunt them there because not many other animals can stand the water, but also limits them. Yes. And it means that those few crustaceans, you know, shrimp or algae or things that can survive in those environments aren't being hunted by anything else. So flamingos can capitalize on it. That's an interesting question. I didn't I didn't find any speculation as to why they disappeared from certain places as time went on. I mean, there's there's tons of other reasons, weather and hunting and, you know, other shifts right, right, can right. affect it, too. That was just an idea that popped in that's hmm, intriguing. Indeed. One of the trends that we see in these flamingo fossils going from early to later. Uh, once again, the body plan is very similar early on, but in the earlier forms... Oligocene, Miocene, so say earlier than 15 million years ago or so, give or take, they have very straight bills, similar to other wading birds. Yeah. But in the more recent forms, the last several million years, we start to see that curved bill shape like we see today. And some have pointed out, remember episode 33, that transition, we see a similar we see something similar to that transition in modern-day flamingo ontogeny. Oh. Baby flamingos are born with straight bills, and as they age, the bill takes on that crazy flamingo shape. Oh, cool. So they, the ontogeny, that, that sort of growth pattern, might be a hint at their evolutionary history as well. It's the, the evolution of the bill has seems to have followed that same trajectory. Neat. That's cool. I mean, it does make you uh, make me wonder... What early flamingos were eating? Were they going after anything similar or were they just going after your more normal fish and stuff? Yeah, maybe they were going after like, you know, shrimp and crustaceans and things Mm -hmm. and then gradually got better at it. Yeah, that's what I was wondering (laughs) if they they started with something similar to the diet and just refined. Well, I don't know what baby flamingos eat. It's a very good question. Yeah. Hmm. So we'll we'll Google that. (laughs) We'll find out. Another interesting fossil find related to flamingos are fossilized eggs from the Miocene of Spain cool. around 18 million years ago, which have an eggshell structure similar to what we see in flamingos. But modern day flamingo nests are these sort of muddy cones. Yes. And they only put one egg in it. True. This fossil nest is covered with twigs and leaves and has several eggs. And researchers have pointed out that this is a lot more like the way that modern grebes nest. Mm. So that might be another ancestral state. That sort of muddy cone strategy might be something unique to the modern day flamingos. Yeah, that's an interesting shift. Cool. And then the other cool surprise out of the fossil record is that there is an entire extinct family of flamingos. (laughs) Of course there is. So, so far we've been talking about the very ancestral flamingos and the fossil record of the modern family. There's a whole other one called the Paleolodidae, which were around about as long as modern flamingos, all the way back to the Oligocene and as recent as the Pleistocene, that were long-legged, straight-billed, and appear to have been adapted for swimming. 
at least partially. Oh. So they weren't just waders. They may also have been swimmers. It's also been suggested they might have been divers as well, but that's not, we're not quite sure about that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they are known sometimes as the swimming flamingos. Oh, that's cool. These have been found in Europe, North America, South America, Africa, Australia, and New Zealand. So super successful. Yeah. Just in France, there are thousands of remains of pele-loaded flamingos known. They had salt glands, which okay. suggests that they also were living in saline environments. And there's some potential evidence that they might also have been filter feeders. Huh. So this was a separate family of flamingos, probably moving in a slightly different way, right? Possibly swimming more than wading compared to modern day flamingos. Genera include Pele Lotus and Mega Pele Lotus, which <laughs> essentially look like modern day flamingos. Uh, you know, if you saw them, you know, out on the street or out in the, the lagoon, you'd think that they were a flamingo. And they lived alongside true flamingos for a long time. Huh. Like they, they're found in the same con the same parts of the world that extinct modern style flamingos are found, going perhaps as far back as the Oligocene. It's always super bizarre. And it's not that it's unusual, but it's always very bizarre when there's a group that is very successful and widespread and then not especially when it's a recent group. And they're just not here today. Yeah. Especially when they're like, and this may be the reason why, but especially when there are other animals similar to them that are around. It's, it's, it's always uh, that, that itching question of why were you doing so well and then weren't? Yes. Well, and it, it brings up the interesting point that, you know, we say, oh, well, the Australian flamingos disappeared by the Pleistocene and the Pele Loteds, the swimming flamingos disappeared at, you know, by the end of the Pleistocene. After they were so successful for so long, but the reality is lots of super successful groups disappeared. Yes, it did. Yeah, by yeah the they end did. Of the Pleistocene. So whether or not they were caught up in the end Pleistocene extinctions or mm -hmm. maybe they, you know, the, the Pleistocene was a time of extensive glaciation. Maybe that was part of it. But yeah, though, the Pleistocene... The beginning and the end of the Pleistocene were tough times for lots of creatures. They were, and and that's <laughs> that's the, where the other interesting question always comes in. Once you're dealing with extinction, is you know why why do we then still have flamingos that made it? Yes, it's it's a unique uh, situation. It's it's cool to think that there was another ver another option of flamingo spread yes. across the planet. There was an off-brand flamingo. Yeah, for thirty million years we had this this. This alternative to flamingos. <laughs> it sounds so bizarre, but I mean, it, it was doing well for a long time. It's just weird to us because it's not here anymore. Yeah, you would have had wading flamingos and swimming flamingos for a long time, which is... A, and, and, and if they, you know, the more recent ones would have been straight-billed flamingos versus our familiar hook-billed flamingos. So cool. I wonder what color they were. Oh, that's a good question. Now, now <laughs> I want to know. They were purple. I have no evidence for that. <laughs> so that's a quick flyby <laughs> overview of <laughs> flamingos. Modern exceptionalism, some historical record, and then their surprisingly fascinating fossil history. Such weird birds. So it's always it, any extra info about them is always really interesting. I've been saying interesting a lot, but they, it really is. Interesting, interesting. Well, Nick, who suggested flamingos, we hope you found that interesting. Oh, indeed. Let us move on to our second 
mini discussion of this episode, The Terror Birds. From cute long net long-legged birds to terrifying ones. Yes. Suggested again by Cheryl and Lydia, the Terror Birds, for any listeners who haven't heard of them, these are not a living group. These are ex- an entire extinct group of birds that are known for being flightless, predatory, and in many cases, rather large. Yeah. The terror birds is the common name given to a family of extinct birds called the forest racidae. The most famous ones are huge. And when I say huge, we're talking two to three meters tall. Yeah. Right. Taller than you, whoever you are, yes. unless you're some crazy basketball player. <laughs> Taller than you. Yeah. Eye to eye with most adults. Yes. They had, the big ones had these massive, powerful legs Short wings, right? Think like an ostrich or an emu today. They're not Mm -hmm. using them anymore. Not for for locomotion, at least. Giant heads with tearing beaks. Yeah, these blade. I mean, looking at them from the front, it almost looks like an axe. They're very thin and hooked, and it's impressive, intimidating. And perhaps the most important and impressive fact about the forest racids is that they were, for most of the Cenozoic era, the most of the age of mammals, the mm-hmm. last 60 million years or so, among the top predators in South America. Yeah. South America was a weird place throughout most of this. still a weird place, but it was a very <laughs> weird place throughout most of the Cenozoic because it was isolated, which meant ecosystems got to do things in South America that they don't typically do elsewhere in the world. Yes. Including... Placing birds at the top of the food chains. (laughs) Dinosaurs, back on top. Exactly, yeah, no, exactly. Age of dinosaurs is over my (laughs) tuckus. It's it's like South America didn't get the memo. All the rest of the (laughs) internet is like, all right, guys, it's the end of the age of reptiles. And somewhere down there, the birds were like, oh, no, no, we misplaced that memo. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah, they flew over there. And South America was like, hey, we're all hiding out here. Are the dinosaurs all gone? And the birds were like... No, back in your burrows. (laughs) We're never gone. (laughs) So as we said, forest racids oftentimes had these big heads. uh, And your your comparison to an axe is is apt because not only were they big and hooked, but they were flat. Yeah. Sort of like side to side flattened. Whenever you see pictures of them, the pictures are often from the side and it makes it look like they've got a big toucan bill. Like it's just this big beefy, but it's really... Thin, thin, thin when you look at the front of it, uh, which is very interesting. Like a weapon. Yes. The big ones tended to have these heavy, sturdy skeletons. Uh, Some of them were among the heaviest birds in Earth history. They had long necks, and there has been study on at least some of the forest racids that has found that the necks were very well adapted for movement in the forward-backwards direction. Good for striking. Good for striking, exactly. Maybe not so much side to side. You know, maybe they it would, maybe they weren't, you know, doing what T-Rex does to the lawyer and shaking yeah, back and yeah. forth like a dog. But striking forward and back seems to have been a forte. I mean, it makes, because that's, that's still a, a major bird weapon today when you think of like a stork pecking, you know, yep. striking down at a fish. They had big, heavy hip bones. Their pelvis was large and reinforced. Their back legs, there was another study... A couple of studies, one that at least one that has found that 
even larger terror birds would have been surprisingly swift and agile with those big, powerful back legs. One study suggested that the mid-sized forest rasses, so mid-sized, we'll get to this in a moment, but, you know, like the size of a preteen, <laughs> would have been similar in speed and maneuverability to an ostrich. Terrifying. Yes, absolutely <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> and speaking of ostriches, another study that I found cited looked at how powerful their legs were and found that they were super strong, very well muscled, good for fast running, possibly good for kicking as a defensive mechanism, as though they needed it with that axe face. <laughs> and it's even been suggested that they may have been able to use their feet to break the bones of their prey to get at like the marrow inside or just to stop it from moving anywhere. <laughs> oh, this is just pinned down by a big bird foot and then it just crushes you. Yeah, and then just stomps on you. Oh, that's that's terrifying. They had, again, tiny arms in most cases. And there was at least another study that looked at the brain of at least one forest rasset that's well-preserved enough so we can see the brain case and found that at least that one had well-developed vision and hearing. Good traits for a predator. Indeed. And, you know... Fairly familiar for birds. Yes. Birds are very, very visual hunters even today. It's the, the fun thing to me about all the traits that you're listening are the powerful legs, large head to body size, small arms, you know, good vision are, yep. speaking of, of funny convergences, this is a big theropod. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The dinosaurs just did it again. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know what worked for 150 million years? This did. You know who I was always a fan of? That T-Rex guy. I thought he was pretty <laughs> cool. <laughs> I think I'm going to model my lifestyle out of him. What if we did that, but with an axe for a face? Yes. <laughs> but I, but I'm, I, the only thing, if I had one critique, I didn't like the teeth. <laughs> yeah, no, would have gotten rid of the teeth. Would have gotten rid of the teeth. Let's do it without the teeth. <laughs> So we'll talk a bit about the diversity of forest racids, but first, their relationships. Forest racids belong to a large group of birds known as the Cariamiform. Uh, the Cariamiforms are close relatives of, for example, falcons and parrots and passerines, which are, you know, like sparrows and such. There are many extinct groups of Cariamiforms, but there is only one group that still has members today, and they are the Cariamas. Oh, cool. Yes. So if you don't know what a Seriama is, Will, would you like to explain what Seriamas are? I know you're a fan. Seriamas are really cool birds. Uh, they, they're also very terrestrial. They can fly, but they run and walk a lot, big long legs. And they look really cool. They got the little feathery mohawk right in front of the bill. <laughs> but they have a really unusual hunting. They hunt along the ground, and that's why they're long-legged to go through the grasslands. And when they find small animals, they pick it up in their beak and then slam it down on the ground again. Yep. Just body slammed a little. You can find tons of videos of them doing it with usually plastic snakes and plastic lizards that uh, they're yeah. doing for uh, training and behavioral purposes at zoos. But it's 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 very indignant way to kill their prey. And it's yes. fascinating. A worthy successor to the terror legacy of their relatives. <laughs> so if you've never seen a Seriama do that, go to YouTube. 
<laughs> I've also seen videos of them like bouncing golf balls and stuff. Oh, interesting. Like, people will give them golf balls and they'll slam it into the ground and bounce it around. But mostly they do it with like lizards and things <laughs> that they don't want to move anymore. Ceriamis today live in grasslands, woodlands, and forests across South America. They tend to get just, uh, you know, as as tall as just under a meter. So a Ceriama might be two, maybe three feet tall. Uh, long necks, long legs, like Will said, they are mostly terrestrial. They can fly, but they don't usually. But very effective and iconic, small-ish predators. Other extinct Cariamiforms include actually lots of species across the world. There is a species, a, a, a genus, known as Strigogyps from Europe, way back, you know, around 30 to 40 million years ago, which was the size of a chicken, flightless and apparently an herbivore, not a predator. There were the Bathorniths from North America, which were all or mostly flightless, and they were long-legged, short-winged, big-headed, grew to be very large. These were sort of the North American counterparts in some ways to the terror birds down in South America. Oh, cool. And they had many species across North America. And then there were some earlier species that belonged to this group that uh, at least one seems to have been a very good flyer. They were known from Europe, North America. There is one at least from China all the way back in the Paleocene. So this whole series of birds has been around for a very long time, formerly very diverse. Today includes the Sariemas, and for the purposes of this discussion, included the terror birds. Huzzah. I should mention at this point that, you know, we're talking about giant flightless birds, and I just mentioned that the terror birds had a closely related family of giant flightless birds from North America. None of these are related to the other giant flightless birds that have evolved <laughs> over and over again throughout Earth history. Today we have ratites, like ostriches and emus, completely different group. Very recently we had the moas of New Zealand and the elephant birds of Madagascar, both completely different groups. Throughout the Cenozoic, there were at least three other major groups of giant flightless birds. Some herbivorous, some apparently carnivorous. There were the Thunderbirds of Australia and Gastornis and relatives in Eurasia and North America earlier on. This sort of giant flightless body plan is something that birds have done over and over and over again. Very cool. It's, it's, and it's interesting since flight is such a obvious advantage to them that flightlessness does show up as often as it does. And it, I, I'm always interested to see how different birds utilize it. Indeed. Well, let's talk about the terror birds themselves. Let's talk a little bit about how they looked and acted throughout their history on our planet. So the earliest terror birds are known from way back in the Paleocene. So that is circa 60 million years ago, very shortly after the Mesozoic came to an end. Yeah, they didn't waste much time. And they lasted all the way, again, until the Pleistocene. Over the course of that time, there are at least somewhere around 18 species known from five different subfamilies. Mostly they're known from South America, although there is potential evidence in Europe and Africa that they may have gotten over there. Mm -hmm. There is also one terror bird known to have made it to North America. Woo! More on that in a little bit. Terror birds came in a range of sizes. Some of them were actually rather small. 
One example is a widespread genus called Siloptorus, which was around from the Eocene to the Miocene at least. These and their close relatives, the other similarly sized terror birds, I guess they're barely terror birds at this rate, forest <laughs> rasids. They're making nervous birds. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> These ranged from 5 to 15 kilograms. So we're looking at 10 to 30 pounds, maybe mm -hmm. a little more, maybe as tall as one meter. So maybe up to three feet. Lean and slender. Now, so these would have been very much like Sariemas are today. Yeah, I mean, still still a big bird, you know, as far as yes. birds go, but nothing monstrous, nothing to to make movies about or put in British television shows. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, probably not too dissimilar in terms of size and body from Sariemas or secretary birds or yes. things like that today. Some were a bit larger. Lalawavis was one of the latest of the terror birds, comes from the late Pleistocene. It is the most complete of any terror bird known to date. It is known from one skeleton that is only missing some bones of the forelimbs, the toes, and the pygostyle, that short-fused bird tail. Nice. So well fossilized, it even preserves the trachea. Whoa. It's a pretty cool specimen. <laughs> and it was a mid-sized terror bird. Estimated around 18 kilograms, so, you know, 40 pounds-ish, and around four feet tall. So, you know, this is a, a very lightweight animal the size of Deinonychus. <laughs> Another very well-known mid-sized terror bird, also around maybe four to five feet tall, is called Andalgalornis from the Myopliocene. A lot of those studies I mentioned before on the feeding and the movement in terror birds comes from Andalgalornis. This this is a specimen that has been very well studied. Very cool. But of course, the most famous of the terror birds, the truly terrifying ones, were the big ones. And there are two major groups of giant terror birds. The first are the Brontorniths, or the Thunderbirds. I guess nice. that's exactly what that means. These are not the same as the Thunderbirds that I referred to before, which are the ones from Australia. <laughs> but the Brontorniths, big heavy-bodied. These were dominant ma mainly from the Oligocene to the Miocene, so earlier on, around the middle of the Cenozoic. Mm -hmm. The most famous of these, Brontornis, comes from Miocene, Argentina, estimated to have been nearly, if not up to, three meters tall. Wow. That's ten feet, Jeez. our fellow Americans. Jeez. And estimated to have been as much as 350 to 400 kilograms. Wow. So that's like 700 to 900 pounds. Wow. This is a big bird. This is one of the largest birds in history. That's ridiculous. Big, predatory, ground-dwelling dinosaur. That's impressive. The Brontornits kind of fade away as we get to the later Cenozoic era and apparently are replaced, perhaps replaced, because that is around the time that we start to see the rise of the Forest Racines. The other group of giant forest racid birds, known from the Myopliocene, also get very large, though not necessarily as beefy mm -hmm. as the ones that came before them. Forest rachos is the member from which this group gets its name, also known from Miocene Argentina. A, a meager two and a half meters tall, with a skull 60 centimeters long, so two feet long, this skull. Oh, psh. If that's all. Oh my gosh. Named all the way back in 1887, when we were only first discovering this group of birds. But the largest known terror bird, 
uh, certainly the largest in this group, possibly the largest one ever, was studied much more recently. Also from Miocene Argentina, this is a bird called Kalenkin. It's known in part from a very, very well-preserved skull, and the skull is 71 and a half centimeters long. Wow. Almost two and a half feet. Wow. It's estimated to have also been perhaps two and a half to three meters tall. These birds got big. These were birds that would have looked eye to eye with a bear. Yeah. Like a big bear. Yeah. Jeez. It's one of those things where, like, the sizes are not crazy as far as two-legged predatory dinosaurs go. But as far as birds go, these are ridiculous. These are some of the biggest birds ever. This is this is pushing the boundaries. Absolutely. And then the fact then to picture it moving quickly and hunting is this would have been a a truck with a beak coming at you. (laughs) Yeah. So that that's the other thing to consider, right? These are wandering the habitats of South America, probably going after small mammals, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. whether or not, you know, exactly how they were dispatching their prey is uncertain they were probably going after relatively small things yeah small compared to them but that's a pretty decent size range of creatures oh, when yeah. you're when you're eight to nine feet tall and you have a beak like a giant machete absolutely yeah the bigger you get small becomes very relative term yeah so picture a 10 foot tall bird doing its best impression of a t-rex <laughs> giant powerful legs axe beak to borrow a term from Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> the terror birds start to decline around the end of the Pliocene. By around, you know, five million years ago or so, we start to see them on the way out. And this might be related to the big tectonic event that was happening at the time. The Great American Biotic Interchange. Hey, that sounds like a cool thing. That sounds like something we should do an episode about. <laughs> around this time, after a entire era of separation south america reconnects with north america and this led to lots of extinction especially in south america with all these north american invasives coming in it may be that this was part of the reason that the terror birds sort of went on the decline at this time as as we've mentioned multiple times in the past when you're an isolated piece of land and you get in contact with a non-isolated piece of land, usually the isolated species lose out because the others have been mixing and interacting on a large scale for much longer, and now you're super specialized, and specialized isn't usually the tool you want when things shift. Yeah. All the mammals finally caught up from the rest of the Cenozoic and went, wait a minute, you're not following this age of mammals thing at all. <laughs> we got this. We got these cats with blades in their mouth, and they're going to teach you what for. <laughs> You've been, how long have you been doing this? <laughs> <laughs> However, at least one terror bird was able to take uh, advantage of this reconnection and move up north. Titanus walleri. The only forest racid known to have made it to the southern United States into North America. They are known from Florida and Texas. This is one of those forest racines, so from the second subfamily of large terror birds. Titanus is estimated to have grown perhaps two and a half meters tall, so we're looking at eight feet, Mm -hmm. to have weighed perhaps 150 kilograms, so like 300 to 400 pounds. Mm Mm-hmm. Titanus seems to show up here around the end of the Pliocene. Some have suggested its prey, and I like this, 
would be anything it could swallow whole. <laughs> Although if it could use its beak and its feet to tear things into pieces, perhaps even bigger than that. Yes. But of course, Titanus seems to go away uh, by the time the Pliocene is transitioning into the Pleistocene. And for a while, it was thought that that was the end of the terror birds. However, a very, very recent study, this year in fact, has reported fossil evidence from Uruguay that dates to just under 100,000 years ago. Wow. That appear to be limb bones of a small forest racid. Uh, this uh, one of the limb bones here has actually been identified as Siloptorus, that genus that I mentioned way in the beginning, the smaller ones mm -hmm. that have spanned across the Cenozoic. If that's true, then forest racids, the terror birds, at least some of the smaller ones, made it right up to the end of the Pleistocene. That's very cool. Indeed. Maybe they didn't disappear after all. Yeah. They might even have survived long enough to interact with the early humans down there. But that's conjecture at this yes, point. Yes, that's cool. I, there's such a unique group of birds just because there's not many predatory birds nowadays that go with the big bill technique, the big beak. Yeah, the, the mammals have sort of taken over the ground-dwelling predator. Yeah, heavyweight kind yeah. of. And, so, and you still have a few. The My two favorites are the marabou stork and the shoebill stork. Have yep. big beefy bills <laughs> that they use to take on small. This marabou's mostly scavenger, but they'll take on small animals. You'll see pictures of them throwing back a, a baby crocodile or something. Yelp. But not many birds go with, like most birds that have big bills are using it for other things than eating prey. Right, cracking nuts yeah, and, and yeah. stuff like that. And so it's it's very unique to have a whole group that went with the giant axe face for hunting which is not a technique we see really anymore. And that's, I'm always intrigued by that. It would have been very fun to watch one of these hunt. Yes. Now, it, you know, we say that, but this body plan evolved a bunch of times. So maybe in the future, we'll get new ones. Yes. If we just give those Seriamas more time. <laughs> <laughs> Horror birds. Uh, yeah, no, the Titanus is the one that you typically see them pull up for whenever... They want to use a, a terror bird in a, a show or a movie or video yeah. game or whatever. There's a great bit of artwork that I've seen of Titanus duking it out with a Smilodon. Mm-hmm. Like mm -hmm. saber-tooth cat. Yes. <laughs> As part of that American interchange. It's a nice way to encapsulate it in a picture. Yes. So that's our quick overview of the terror birds. Thank you to Cheryl and Lydia for that suggestion. One more, one final mini discussion for this bonus episode. Let us talk about giant flying birds of the distant past. Suggested again by Jason on Twitter, who specifically named them by genus, <laughs> which I, I greatly appreciated. Jason wants us to talk about Argentavis and Pelagornis. Pelagornis. And so we shall. Today, the largest birds are, of course, ostriches. Yep. Just like the terror birds got enormous in the past by virtue of not having to fly around. When you stop ignoring gravity, not, you don't have to break so many rules in your body weight. <laughs> yes. Today, the largest flying birds 
And this varies depending on whose list you're looking at, but typically what you'll see cited as the heaviest flying bird today is the Cory Bustard. Yes. There are also, there's, there's at least one other Bustard that might be in the, a similar place. I've seen a couple of domestic birds, like turkeys, yeah, yeah, cited yeah, yeah. as maybe getting this size. But the Cory Bustard gets up to 18 to 19 kilograms, around 40 pounds. Decent. With a wingspan of two and a half feet, fairly short wings. Capable of flight, but rarely doing it. Yeah. Mostly ground-dwelling bird, but they can fly at 40 pounds uh, among the heaviest flying birds. Yeah, these are the, the heavy, technically flying birds. Yes. Not, <laughs> if not actively. <laughs> the Andean condor today grows up to 15 kilograms, so a little over 30 pounds. Its wingspan is really impressive. That is the really impressive part. Yeah. Over 10 feet. <laughs> The Andean condor, a 10-foot wingspan. I never, a, I'm never not impressed by that one. <laughs> this is a such wingspan a cool bird. the size of a SUV. <laughs> and the wandering albatross, which is quite a bit lighter. The wandering albatross is actually fairly light, mm-hmm. uh, not quite reaching 20 pounds. But the wingspan, the maximum size recorded for a wandering albatross wingspan that I have seen is almost, but not quite, 12 feet across. Yeah. This, this is the bird with... It's it's more wing than it is bird, really. Yes. Oh no, the, the wing is the most of the majority of the important parts of this animal. And it's it's because they are they are designed the what, thus in the name the wandering albatross can stay out over the ocean for days, never yes. touching the water. Just those wings just carried along, barely flapping. It's like um the solar planes that you see. They're just long, thin wings with. Almost yep. no structure, but they can fly for like months, barely coasting along. It's the same concept. Yep. The, the Andean condor does a similar thing. It soars through the air. Mm-hmm. And it's just mountaintop so, instead of ocean. So those are the record setters today. Birds as heavy as 40 pounds, birds with wingspans up to 10 or more feet. But now, as per Jason's request, let's discuss two, the two largest record setters of the past. Starting with a bird called Argentavis magnificens. <laughs> Good name. Argentavis is known, stop me if you've heard this one before, from the Miocene of Argentina, <laughs> dates to around 6 million years ago. So this is a time frame, right? Go back to episode 18. This is around the time that our own lineage, the yes. hominin lineage, is getting started over in Africa. It's known from at least four localities, fossil localities, in Argentina. Argentavis is estimated... To have weighed around 70 kilograms. Significant. Roughly 150 pounds. Yeah. So the size of a podcast host. (laughs) With a wingspan estimated at 7 meters. So in the vicinity of 20 to 25 feet. That is more than twice the wingspan of the wandering albatross and the Andean condor from before. That is the size, as I have seen it proudly cited, <laughs> of a Cessna 152 light aircraft. Yep, that's that's the one that I always hear. <laughs> <laughs> this is a bird the size of a plane. Yeah. Argentavis magnificens belongs to a group of birds called the Teratorns. That's a cool name. Or the Teratornithidae. These are known from the Miocene to Pleistocene of North and South America. They are close relatives of New World vultures and condors. So you'll often see Argentavis compared with modern-day condors, which I will be doing in a moment. (laughs) 
One of the Teratorns, Teratornus, is known from over 100 individuals over in La Brea, also very large, about the, the, the size of the largest modern-day condors, if not a little bigger. This was a trend in Teratorns. There are a handful of Teratorns that got to very large sizes, similar to the largest birds we see today. Cool. But Argentavis by far takes the cake. Despite its size, though, it was definitely a flyer. You know, you might look at that and you say, oh, well, it's 150 pounds. No way. Yeah. It, this, clearly, this just wasn't doing it. But it's got the light pneumatic bones you expect to see from flying birds. Its wing bones are long and powerfully muscled. It's got those feather nodes up and down the ulna that, we, that are there for flight feathers. It's got a list of adaptations that we... It's got the body of a flying bird. Yes. However... It does not appear to have the muscle strength that it would have needed to flap very much. This would have been a soaring bird. Like a kite. Yes, and like modern giant birds. Mm -hmm. Large size has a lot of benefits. Being very large makes you a much more efficient soarer. It allows you to glide faster. It even reduces drag. Being big is actually really good for staying airborne. That makes sense. Your, Your surface area to weight is changing so now the drag is not as significant compared to your mass yeah it reduces the i don't understand aerodynamics all that well but it reduces i i believe i read it the like the vortexes yeah yeah vortices that form around wings that that cause drag interesting so there's a lot of great benefits to having giant wings Hmm. however there are two very big challenges (laughs) the first is how do you stay in the air yep Gravity doesn't have nearly as much of a problem with a 10-pound bird as it does with a 150-pound bird. (laughs) It starts to get offended at that point. (laughs) Now you're just pissing me off. You get back down here. (laughs) I summon that asteroid and I'll take you down too. Don't mess with me. Modern-day giant soaring birds manage this feat by using what are called upcurrents. Yeah. That is, patches of rising air. There are two notable types of upcurrents that are used by condors today. One are called thermals, which I learned about reading Animorphs way back in the day. Yep. Because Tobias also always had to find the thermals yep. and ride on the thermals. We used to we used to make a habit of it when I was in elementary school back when we still had playtime. <laughs> man I'm, i was so sad in middle school and i found out that wasn't a thing yeah uh, now we're stressed out uh but when we would go out to the playground we could look out in the distance and this is in Sewanee near atlanta so i mean it's it's tons of blacktops and they form thermals because they get hot and you could just watch birds in these columns circling yeah, these columns of rising warm air you know six to twenty just birds circling up and then they get to the top and they would just coast off in a direction just and yep. disappear into the horizon it was fascinating to watch we would take we would try to time when we thought they were about to take off and it was <laughs> but it was really cool getting to see that in real world and it would just be daily because there was this one area that formed a really good thermal near my school yeah there would have been similar columns of warm air rising over the miocene grasslands yes back in Argentavis's time although again birds do it today There's also something called slope soaring. If you live near the mountains, and Argentavis is found along the foothills of the Andes, Mm -hmm. when winds blow up against slopes, the winds will be deflected upwards. 
Yes. And this too causes rising patches of air. Modern day condors use both of these. Argentavis would have lived, right? Thermals over those warm grasslands, slope winds over the foothills of the Andes Mountains. Argentavis may have been able to just ride from column to column of mm -hmm. rising air for miles and miles and miles on those giant wings. I believe albatrosses also ride the upcurrents off of the waves out at oceans. Yes, more, more on that <laughs> in a little bit. But perhaps the even bigger challenge than keeping a giant bird in the air is getting a giant bird in the air. Yeah, you got to take off somehow. Perhaps the biggest limiting factor in flying animals is takeoff. It yes. is the most, en most energetically expensive thing that a bird has to do is get itself into the air. There's a slow motion video I saw of a, of a pigeon taking off. And when when we see it normally, it's just like flutter, flutter, fly away. But when you see it yep. in slow-mo, it is a Olympian jump. Yep. And then a, I think it was four flaps in like a second and a half. And if they don't yep. accomplish those things, they're not going to get off the ground. <laughs> Birds have those giant back legs mm -hmm. for jumping up into the air. Now, if you're huge, that becomes harder to do. Uh, it's been suggested in the past that Argentavis may simply have needed to be elevated to take off. Yes. You have to be up on a cliff or something. But that's not a great life strategy to have to climb up a cliff every time you have to take off. That was the same thing that was often suggested for uh, pterodactyls and the large flying reptiles yes. for a long time. As people thought there was no way they could take off from anywhere but the cliff edge just due to their size. But there was a study several years ago by Chatterjee et al. that looked at Argentavis and said, could it take off from the ground? Mm -hmm. Let's do some biomechanics. What they found is no, not if it just jumped. <laughs> but a lot of birds today, including the Cory Bustards, the big heavy birds, manage it by running. Yes. You run, you build up speed like a taxiing airplane, and then you get that boost they suggested that for Argentavis, this would have been very difficult, maybe impossible. Mm -hmm. However, one thing that we see in modern lar large birds today, like albatrosses, is that they can pull it off if they have a little bit of a slope. Yes. Just a small degree of slope downhill, according to this study, should have been enough to get Argentavis up in the air. To run down a small slope and then build up enough speed to flap and get up there literally a runway they have to have yes and 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 the fun thing and i love picturing this with a, a large bird like this as well because albatross are colony birds uh they have a shared runway there's like they nest near an ideal takeoff spot yes and if you're argentavis living in the mountains mm -hmm. there's gonna be plenty of slopes around yeah it's fun because they actually do taxi in like planes they have to take turns yes, they do. <laughs> using it Yep, it's, yep. it's fun to picture a bird with a 20-foot <laughs> wingspan doing the same thing of lining up and then just running headlong and yes. slowly building up speed. So Argentavis would have been a bit of a challenge to get it into the air, but it appears that it could have done it without, too, without having to go too far out of its way. Certainly could have stayed up there like large birds do today. Inferred to have been an active predator, probably diurnal like lots of birds today. Teratorns in general don't appear to have been able to tear flesh the way that, say, vultures do. 
mm-hmm. which suggests that they would have swallowed their prey whole like most birds. And one source that I found made the delightful point that Argentavis, with its head, which I have this and I forgot to read it before, its skull is 55 centimeters long and 15 centimeters wide. Wow. Yeah. It would have been able to swallow an animal the size of a hair. Yeah. That's <laughs> that's kitten-eaten size. <laughs> yes, big gulps. <laughs> so Argentavis, floating over the warm grasslands and the Andes Mountains in the Miocene, the other bird we're talking about is Pelagornis sanderzi. Pelagornis sanderzi comes from Oligocene, South Carolina, around 25 million years ago. So quite, it's quite some time before Argentavis showed up. There are actually many species of Pelagornis. They're known from all around the world. They get to all different sizes, but the largest was Pelagornis sanderzi. With a wingspan estimated again at up to 7 meters... So again, we're looking at going on, you know, that range of 20 to 25 feet. However, it is estimated to have been much lighter than Argentavis. Uh, the weight estimates for Pelagornis sanderzi are only 21 kilograms, or not quite 50 pounds. Okay, that's, yeah, that's significantly less. So this, much like an albatross, very, very big wings on a relatively small body. In fact, proportionately, Pelagornis has even larger wings than the albatross compared to its body size. That's awesome. <laughs> More on Pelagornis in a bit, but let's talk about its family. The Pelagorniths, or the pseudo-toothed birds. Hey. They are named this because all of them, including the small airplane-sized Pelagornis sanderzi, had these spike-like protrusions sticking out of their jaws that would have looked and acted like teeth. Nice. Not true teeth. Remember, at the end of the last episode, we talked about how modern birds ancestrally have no teeth. Pseudo-tooth birds came up with a solution <laughs> and made up fake teeth. <laughs> they were the ones outside the meeting who voted against getting rid of the teeth, but had to anyway. Yes. <laughs> Fine, we'll show you guys. We, we don't need your dentine anyway. These birds were around all the way back from the Paleocene down to the Pleistocene. They lived all over the world. This was a very successful group of fake-toothed birds. Pelagornis sanderzi isn't the only giant one. There's another species of Pelagornis called Pelagornis chilensis, which had a wingspan of over 5 meters, which is insane and huge and would be ridiculous if we weren't talking about two birds that dwarf it. <laughs> yep. Their relationships of the pseudo-toothed birds have also been kind of argued back and forth. Previously, some researchers had found evidence to link them to pelicans, others to albatrosses. Interesting. But most recently, they have been found, the most recent studies have found them to be close relatives of the anseriforms, which includes ducks and geese. Big duck. Pelagornis sanderzi, the giant, same similar wingspan to Argentavis, a third the weight, also a flyer, has the big wings, has the reduced back legs, right? Has the whole flying setup, but has the same issues as before, right? Being big is is great for staying in the air forever, but makes it tough to stay up there and get up there in the first place. Mm -hmm. Pelagornis is different from Argentavis in two major ways. One, as we've already discussed, small body, giant wings. 
compared to its body. And two, Pelagornis is found from marine ecosystems. Nice. This is not a bird that was riding the winds coming off the mountains. This was a bird that was riding the winds coming off the ocean. Nice. If you look at albatrosses today, they fly by riding on those marine winds. And one of the things they do, and there's some cool videos uh, about, about this, though you can watch them do it, is called dynamic soaring. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wind is slow above the waves and faster higher up. So what albatrosses will do is they will swoop up into the fast winds, ride them for a while, go down into the slower winds, and use that to swoop back up into the fast wind. And they just keep going on that, swooping up, mm -hmm. riding it forward, swooping up, riding it forward. And they can do this for miles and miles and miles. <laughs> if anyone's ever played Arkham City, it's the same way you can glide around the city. In that <laughs> That's <one. laughs> how Batman glides. Or Dynamic uh, riding. <laughs> Older school gamers, Super Mario 64. There you go. <laughs> you swoop up and you catch the air again. <laughs> Only these birds can do it forever. There's no there's no world boundary. Yes. That's going to you hit it and turn around. Yeah, no. Pelagornis probably could have done the same thing, except with twice the wingspan. This would have been a massive creature, possibly picking food off the surface of the water. Uh, hunting on the sea the way albatrosses do. As far as takeoff, uh, probably would have taken off similar to Argentavis. Yeah. Because Pelagornis is a little lighter, it's possible it would have been easier for it to get up there. One of the questions that has come up in one of the studies that I read is albatrosses today, if they need to, can actually land on the ocean. Yes. They'll land on the sea and they can take off from there. Yeah, they got big webbed feet so they can still do some yep. of that running to push themselves off the surface. Whether or not Pelagornis sandersi could take off from the water is a bit of an open question because, it, again, way bigger, way heavier. That's harder to do. My guess, my completely uninformed guess, is that, yeah, probably could. Yeah. <laughs> but these, these creatures are often capable of more than we assume at first we see like i think about that very regularly whenever we're talking about fossil animals and whether they physics wise you know biomechanically could or could not do something and there's many times that you'll hear people talk about some large animal or some very bizarre animal and saying we don't think it could do an insert simple task here and then later nice. on we'll look at it again and go oh it probably could and i think we're just very awe easily you know oftentimes awestruck by yes how big or bizarre it is that our brains are trying to wrap around and going, well, there's no way it could just act like a bird at that. <laughs> like that. It's hard for us to think of a 20 foot wingspan bird, just being a bird. Yeah. But they manage it. And cause it's, and it's not to say it's wrong to question these things, but obviously it worked because this thing survived and was functioning. Yep. Our task is simply to figure out how in the heck it did it. Yes, exactly. That's where the interesting question is. And I I tend to agree with you. It would be very poor design to be an ocean flying bird and the ground is lava. <laughs> yeah, unless, unless they stuck really close to the shore or something. Yeah. I don't know what. Here's a funny note. The place where Pelagornis Sanders I was discovered in South Carolina is just outside an airport. <laughs> how about that? It's it inspired future generations. These... Argentavis, Magnificens, and Pelagornis sandersi are the absolute largest that we know of that birds have ever achieved. It might be the largest that birds are capable of achieving. 
Yes. There's that question of, it, is this the limits of this design? Yes. And it might be. It might be that birds, the limiting factor for birds cuts them off around this size. Mm -hmm. And it happened at least twice. These two birds existed 20 million years apart from each other and on two different continents. So this is not impossible to achieve. It happened more than once. Yeah, and, and that always raises the, the secondary question of, you know, not only is, is this the limit, but what what factors allow a bird to get this big? Yes. Is there something we're lacking now, or are we just waiting for birds to get big again? Yeah, yeah. Was what Would Argentavis have been able to do that later on when it was colder? Mm-hmm. Right? Would Pelagornis have managed to do it slightly earlier when it was crazy hot? Mm-hmm. Right? Would that, what are the limiting factors? What, you know, is it food? Is it just space like physical space yeah. to fit these birds it's pretty i want to see i would love to see those birds fledging yeah i bet that would be so <laughs> weird i wonder how big they were when they first like well how big is a fledgling argentavis mm -hmm. this is this <laughs> giant bird in a nest the size of a hand glider just uh, coming out of a nest i'm also picturing a baby bird with featherless wings that are just like as long as my arm <laughs> <laughs> these, these huge fleshy non-feathered wings that are just ridiculously long for its body that's good eating <laughs> Th those could actually be buffalo wings <laughs> <laughs> indeed listeners thank you for joining us on this extra bonus tangent off across the world of cenozoic birds huge thanks to nick cheryl lydia and jason for these suggestions we hope that you are satisfied with this anthology of bird discussions. <laughs> and we hope that you've all learned some fascinating things. This was super fun for me to, to put these notes together. Absolutely. No, it, it's, it's cool getting to do to just look into different weird groups. And I, I got to say, I knew terror birds would be fascinating. I knew the giant flyers would be fascinating. I am astounded by how interesting flamingo evolutionary history is. Right? Yeah, they're neat birds. I did not I did not know what to expect from flamingos. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, that is all for now. We now return you to your regularly scheduled program. That's not true at all because June is full of all sorts of bonus. It was just breaking the nonsense. rules all over the place. The next thing after this is going to be the 4th, 5th, 5th, the 5th Jurassic Park. Yeah. Uh franchise episode. So keep an eye out for that as we wrap up the month. Listeners, as always, thank you for listening to us. Let us know what you want to hear about. Let us know which of the things, the crazy things we're doing these days you like. Mm -hmm. We get a ton of information out of interacting with you. It is a huge boost to us, not only our personal self-esteem, yes. but also to the success of the podcast. When you comment on Facebook or share us with your friends or rate us on iTunes and all that sort of stuff. It lets us know what things to keep doing, what things to improve, and gives us ideas for new things to do. And every time we get a rating or interaction on the internets, it gives us more visibility on the internets. So you leave a comment, it's two birds with one stone. You help us out in a number of different <laughs> ways. So please keep doing it. Please keep reaching out to us, and we will keep providing you with cool, crazy things that give us extra work and are tons <laughs> of fun like this. Absolutely. We release episodes every fortnight, except for all those times when we don't. <laughs> but there's always one every fortnight at the very least. 
So stick around for the stuff that's coming up. Absolutely, guys. Thanks for joining us. And we will see you then. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.